Welcome, everyone, to another episode of Where's This Going? Before we get into it, I want to remind you to please check out my YouTube channel and subscribe to it by searching my name, Felix Levine, on YouTube. There you'll have every episode in video version, as well as smaller clips and highlights from those episodes. Also, please check out my website, felix-levine.com. There you'll find everything about the show. And if you're a sponsor or fan that wants to get in touch with me, my contact information is there handy. Before we get into it, I also want to give a big shout out to my sponsor, U.S. Wellness Meats. All of U.S. Wellness Meats' beef, lamb, bison, and dairy products are 100% grass-fed and grass-finished. They also offer pasture-raised heritage pork, free-range poultry, and wild-caught seafood. They specialize in a variety of special diets and have hundreds of paleo, keto, Whole30, sugar-free, and AIP-friendly options. U.S. Wellness Meats has over 400 all-natural whole foods in their online store at uswellnessmeats.com. All of their foods are raised on family farms dedicated to sustainable and ethical principles. They do not use any pesticides, herbicides, antibiotics, growth hormones, or GMOs. Use promo code podcasts, P-O-D-C-A-S-T, for 15% off store-wide savings at uswellnessmeats.com today. I also want to give a massive shout-out to Eat Clean Bro. Eat Clean Bro is a convenient service that I use all the time that is designed to bring chef-prepared meals right to your front door. They address the concerns of potential long-term health problems by removing processed food, chemicals, and preservatives from your diet and preparing your meals fresh with all natural ingredients. Eating clean is not always easy, so they've made it simple enough to fit every individual's needs. Whether you're looking to lose weight, live a clean and healthy life, or build lean muscle mass through a natural diet, their service has a line of meals to fit your lifestyle. When you use promo code WTG, you'll receive 15% off every single order at eatcleanbro.com. And my next guest, she is the co-founder of Black Lives Matter, Greater New York City, and she is currently running in a massive election on June 23rd to represent the 15th Congressional District of New York. We need more people like her in power. Please welcome Shavana Newsom. And we're live. Shavana Newsom, I'm, uh, first of all, I'm super excited to have you on the show. Thank you for inviting me. You are busy on so many fronts these days. Uh, so You're right. So <laughs> for, for you to take just a little bit of time, a lot of bit of time uh, for you is, uh, is uh, truly an honor. Um, and I'm just so excited. There's so much that I want to go into. Uh, but first, as I told you a few seconds ago, is there a little tidbit, a little story that the world doesn't know uh, of Shivana Newsom from from what's out there. You've been doing a lot of press recently. Little little story, little tidbit. Um, it may be out there. Okay, uh, it may be That's out okay. there. But uh, my parents were freedom fighters. My parents actually met at a civil rights rally in 1969 in the Bronx, and you read it, and you know this already. But uh, that's probably like the most important thing to me is how, how my life came about. They were high school sweethearts in the Bronx, and now me and my brother are both freedom fighters. So. And how did they uh, describe their first kind of interaction at that civil rights uh, movement? Oh, you're good, because this isn't shit. So my mom, who's like, she's gorgeous. But even back then, she was more so like 
cover shoot gorgeous, even in high school. So she's like sitting in class and my dad's like leaning against Fordham University where I actually ended up attending, but that's right across from their high school. And her sister was like, come down. And everyone was like, come down. So they really, he really summons her out of a window. And she came down and they protested together. And it it, uh, it was 44 years until death did them part. Uh, my dad passed a few years ago, but yeah, they got married. They actually eloped. People don't know that. They actually got married to like Bronx County Courthouse. And it's been magic ever since. And do you think uh, that... That little, you know, you have the, the the civil rights in you, in the DNA. Do you think, uh, I mean, was it a big subject of conversation growing up? I mean, how, what was that dynamic like within your family? Always. Um, it's funny. We had a wooden table like this, and we always had debates. My whole family's news junkies. So, like, we're addicted to the news. A lot of stuff, how you'd expect it to come from, like, my team and communications. A lot of things that happen in the news. Thanks, Mom, for telling me these things. So, when you woke up in the morning, the news would be on. When you went to bed at night, the news would be on. Of course, there'd be some good TV in the middle. But uh, we had these topics of conversation as long as I remember being able to speak from a child. We've discussed politics. We've discussed racism. My parents really weren't the type to sugarcoat the world from us. So that totally shaped us into who we are now. I think when I was about 11, they gave me the book Before the Mayflower. That's like a real black power, black history kind of a book. So they weren't super revolutionary. Like as much as we love uh, daishikis and stuff like that, they didn't really walk around the house like that. But it was very pro-black, pro-history, absolutely political. My parents took me to vote when they were, when I I was a kid, like my dad would let me pull down the levee and the old polling stations. So my parents just kept us really well informed. I'm grateful to them. And at what point did you start to have that kind of, uh, you know, activist brewing inside you that you would make some kind of career? I mean, what did you think, you know, at maybe seven, eight, seven, eight-year-old uh, Shavana Newsom, what did you think uh, life would be when you were older? Um... I, I, what did I want to be back then? I probably wanted to be a scientist, but then when I got to high school, biology just was not my friend. Uh, I didn't, I, I didn't know. I always knew I'd be doing something impactful and I changed majors the whole gang of times. I actually didn't use my economics degree for quite a few years until I became a financial advisor, but my advocacy started when I was age 11. My father had had a massive heart attack. Um, that's where they replaced, like they, they did surgery where they replaced like your vowels and stuff. Doctors call it like a cabbage. Um, yeah, they played take your veins from your legs and they put them in your heart to help your heart pump. And my mother had to work full time. I came from a two parent home, but we still lived below the poverty line. So I became like his home attended health coordinator person. So not only advocating at 11, I don't know how I got the wherewithal to do this. I'm so grateful to my parents, but I would call to get more home attendant services and we didn't have enough money. That's why I believe in free health insurance to buy his medicine in one month at a time because they were really expensive and he took like 30 pills. So I would negotiate with local pharmacies. I was a healthcare advocate before I knew what a healthcare advocate was. And it was always a call to stand up for the little guy. I always hated bullies. So now that I think about it as an adult and I reflect back, I was always fighting the bully, whether that was the healthcare system, um, people in the neighborhood. When I organized tenants associations against landlords who wouldn't make repairs, I didn't call it an activist then. I didn't know what I was doing. I just saw an injustice and I decided to speak up. I always had like good leadership skills. I always had the ability to organize and to make things happen. So that's just what I've spent my life doing before I threw a title and a label on it. That's just me. And do you feel like all that leadership stemmed from, you know, growing up and taking care of your dad? Or do you think there was something else about, like, describe that feeling that you had when you were younger of seeing that injustice. What, what was going on in your head and what made you, prompted you to want to make that change? 
Well, I always believe that I could win. And it's funny because I scream that chant as, as an activist. Like there's this thing we do and we all say in unison, I, I, I believe that we will win. So I always believed that if I tried hard enough at anything, I would win at it. Mm -hmm. So if that meant beating the landlords, if that meant beating Big Pharma before I knew to call it Big Pharma, it was always something in me where I had to protect others. Where I, Even though I'm the youngest in the family, I have an older brother, but I always felt the need to protect everyone, to fight the bully. So I see our current healthcare system and our current government as a bully to oppress people. And I live by the same model in Crete now. So there's so much, you know, that I want to get into. There's so much going on. I think you know, I, I walked in here. First of all, you're my first uh, first time back in the studio in four months, so I'm I'm, I'm happy it's you. It's kind of historic, right? I, it is. I'm and like the post COVID, it, like, like we survived it. it it's kind like of every guess. there's so much going on. It's like yeah. you know, I walked in here and I and Josh is here for all my all my sessions, and we just hey, kinda, Josh. we shout out to Josh. Uh, we just looked at each other like, wow, you know, it it was a little different when I saw you. Um, but before we get into all of it, it's just kind of you know, my first question is just. How are you feeling? What's going on in your head? Have you had a second to sit down to process, you know, not even just the past couple weeks, the past couple months, years? I mean, you know, you're you're running for Congress. I mean, there's so much going on in your head for you. You know, have you had the time to sit down and think about it? The last time I had a chance to actually process all that was happening, we just finished petitioning season. So that means that every candidate needs a certain amount of signatures to get on the ballot. Well, this happened in the middle of the COVID pandemic mm -hmm. when Governor Cuomo put shelter in place in order. So that was cut in half. Luckily, we did make the ballot. We will appear on the June 23rd ballot or for some people who have chosen the absentee ballot. But that week, that was the first week I had slept like like really relax. Like I'm talking about like eat snacks and watch TV and be like a normal person since April of 2019. I haven't taken a day off. So it was that. And I got to relax and it let my brain process. It let me, I think it gave me the strength to do all I'm doing now. Uh, so we started the People's Food Program where we fed over 6,000 people because the Bronx has food insecurity with or without COVID. Uh, the, the district I'm running in is actually one of the nation's poorest congressional districts. So people are usually without resources. So we started feeding people um, to the chagrin of my family. Uh, me, Linda, who's uh, my campaign manager, and my brother, Hawk. Yeah. We just got in a Suburban, in a, or Denali, same size, whatever. Uh, we, and we just started packing up groceries every day and doing deliveries because I couldn't risk the whole team coming out in a pandemic. So the three of us, and then we started getting volunteers as the world became more comfortable with the pandemic. And since then, then NYPD started to beat up black and brown men for not wearing face masks. And we actually foresaw this on April 7th. We wrote a letter to Governor Cuomo before the Bronx was declared the epicenter of the COVID pandemic. And we said, hey, we need more testing sites because we saw the numbers coming out of Chicago and Milwaukee. We need money to give to gun violence interrupter people. These are people going to the community who stop violence. People who are always there playing a huge role hands-on in the community. We need to give them money to enforce social distancing because we foresaw that the NYPD was incompetent and incapable of handling relations with people of color, black communities. So we asked for that. We asked for more money to be allocated to kids who didn't have tablets. It, we listed a whole bunch of demands to the governor. And lo and behold, about a week or two after that, black men started getting beat up by the NYPD. 
So protesting began. We started a huge caravan out here in Brooklyn where it was about 100 cars deep, and we went to every single precinct where a black man had gotten beaten up. And in the process of doing these things right before our protest, my brother Hawk and I, we were doing food deliveries. And this video actually went viral. We were doing food deliveries, and we saw a large police presence at a NYCHA complex for people outside of New York. That's public housing. That's the projects. So we were on the show Cop Watch America. That's what we do in our personal life. If we see the cops in our community heavy, heavy, we pull out our cell phones and we intercede if it if it's a cause to do so. And Hawk was arrested. Literally, NYPD actually released a statement for yelling because he told the community to stand up for themselves, not to allow the com- police to come in and brutalize them and prep or spray them and falsely arrest them. So he was arrested. And then the press and everything started coming and still doing food deliveries through this because they arrested him, released him within a few hours. And then we had the unfortunate death of George Floyd. Now, I honestly, I can't, I won't lie to you, I barely know what day it is. Every day kind of feels like the same to me. I haven't slept much since George Ford passed. So forgive me if I sound a little raspy. I sound like a New York City rapper (laughs) right now. But I haven't slept very much because we were on the ground about three days after George Floyd's death. And talk about, you know, this past, well, I think it was, it was the Monday before last, so about 10 days ago. Um, you know, we talk about what that daily schedule looks like for you. I mean, you're also, you know, in the midst of a congressional uh, run. So, you know, I think for people out there, uh, you know, my goal today is to, is to get to know you better because it's my belief that, you know, we can post, we can repost things on social media. Fuck does it, <laughs> you know, let's be honest here. You know, donating uh, to the right places, I think uh, can go a long way and, and, you know, that's something that's important to me. Um, but I think the reality is we need to vote, you know, the right people in office. Um, and then we'll get into all that later. But I'm more curious right now is what's a daily schedule look like, you know, maybe the past 10 days, you know, pre-George Floyd and, and the bigger protests that have been going on. What's, what's it look like? Pre-George Floyd would, was just focusing on, say, we take the social distancing out of play because the NYPD officially said they were going to, like, Gover- not Governor Cuomo, what's this dude's name who I want to resign? Mayor de Blasio. <laughs> yeah, him, that guy. So he had stopped the NYPD from enforcing social distancing. So it seemed like we had a huge victory. I think that was about two weeks ago, kind of. So we were just doing food program. And just to go back to what you were talking about in terms of campaigning, I suspended my campaign, not suspended it officially, just rather shifted spaces when COVID-19 hit. It was hard for me to make dials a day. What people don't know when you're a candidate for Congress, you call people about five hours a day and beg for money. Especially if you're a first-time candidate and you don't have a wealthy war chest or friends to back this up. All my friends are activists and teachers. So I stopped asking people for money. There's 38 million people in America without a job. What kind of human being would I be if I called and asked you to donate as important as politics are to my campaign? So me, Movers and Shakers, and Black Lives Matter Greater New York, which I co-founded, we started asking for money to feed people. So we raised roughly, I want to say 30-something thousand dollars to feed the people of the Bronx. That's what we did. Instead of my volunteers calling people to say, hey, vote for me, or hey, give her some money, it was like, are you okay Do you need hand sanitizer? Do you need face masks? Do you need food deliveries? So that's what I think separates me from other people because I look at things in terms of an organizer. I'm a revolutionary. So I don't know how to content. I don't know how to do politics as usual because I've never been a politician. But leading up to the last 10 days and with George Floyd and all that stuff, before that, we were just doing food deliveries from pretty much from the time any wholesaler, BJ's, Costco's type of a place opened up. We load up the truck make the deliveries. More people started helping as everyone became comfortable with PPE and COVID. 
but since uh, George Floyd's um, unfortunate murder, it's you're still doing food deliveries. But now I've had to divide my team with protesting. We don't loot or 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 vandalize or do violence, but we understand the frustration of people who do that because America cares more about <clears throat> excuse me, America cares more about property than it does people. Our founding doctrine is life, liberty, and property. We switched over to happiness later, but I understand the frustration of people who are so angry with the system, who are without resources and why they they did these things. So I'm organizing a team and doing press, things like this. So I literally have about four news outlets I'm doing a day while organizing my volunteers with my amazing team, doing cleanup in the Bronx and organize, mobilizing people on the ground. So I, I don't know how it's getting done. So it's just Jesus and my amazing team. Amazing. Uh, what I wanted to do also a few times throughout, because you know some people pick up at different points, is uh, let people know where they can find your website, com. If you can donate, of course, donate. Please do so. Um, and then also what I wanted to do really just kind of uh, periodically is also, are there any specific, um, you know, funds that you support? Like, you know, talking about donating different foods. Where can people donate if they're listening right now? You can um, donate to Black Lives Matter Greater New York. And we are super grassroots. We are lucky for the donations we have received. Rihanna, she just pulled up. Wow. So she just made a donation. Uh, Nick Cannon is actually a member of Black Lives Matter Creator New York. So he met us on the ground out in Minneapolis. But people, it's really grassroots. You can go to Black Lives Matter Greater New York's website or you can PayPal us like it's, or Venmo us. If you go to, we really, I know we should be more active on the websites, but most of us are millennials in generation, I believe is what Z now. Yeah, I, don't is, I don't know. <laughs> it's like the generation after millennials. Hey, so most of our interactions and how we, chat with people, how we organize and how we share stuff is Twitter. And primarily me, I love Instagram. So if you go to New York, the full word Vonnie, V-O-N-N-I, or Black Lives Matters IG, which is BLM, Greater NY, it's where our upcoming actions are. And everyone's linked in a bio. You have the option of donating to the food program or it shows you how to donate to Black Lives Matter Greater New York through PayPal, Bimmo, Cash App. It's really easy for the demographics that we're made up of. And even... Even like baby boomers know how to use PayPal. So yeah. Um, so for me, I'm also very curious as to, you know, you talk about your team. How does that work? I mean, what, who consists of your team? Uh, what are the conversations like daily? I mean, I'm sure now it's, you know, it's shifted a little bit um, on a daily basis. But, you know, I mean, we're June 4th, I think. Uh, mm. Got an election in 19 days for you. Yes. Um, you know, this will come out in a couple days, but uh you know, what's what do you look what do you see as the next 19 days looking like for you and the discussion with your team? Well, luckily, I am really grateful to have two separate teams. I'm really fortunate. I have because like the Black Lives Matter, Greater New York team, who's focusing on social justice and things around the community. And then there's a Newsom for Congress team who is phone banking every day, who's sticking up flyers every day. Sometimes they intersect the two teams and we'll do food deliveries together, but they're two separate people. People join on them what they're good at. The BLM team is more like our A team. That's our ground game, intense. We're on the front lines fighting. What do numbers look like for that? 
It's not as large as you may think. Okay. And we may be paranoid because our 10-point plan comes from that of the Black Panther Party. So our inner core is no more than 10 people. But we have the ability to bring out thousands and thousands of people to an event the way we know how to organize and mobilize people. The campaign team is probably at about, it's been growing recently. The social injustice have actually grew the campaign volunteers. Hey, Linda, I think, what are we? Sorry, Linda, who I'm talking to, that's my campaign manager. She's the glue that keeps it all together. She is also the director of operations for BLM Greater New York. So Linda plays an integral role on both. But I think we're at about 75 to 100. Yeah. We're at 75 to 100 volunteers for that side of it. And what are the, you know, how how do you guys organize? I mean, what are the internal kind of uh, conversations looking like on, you know, when you're going to protest, when you're going to do this, when you're going to do that. I mean, I'm I'm more curious because— Who are you trying we, to tell the NYPD? You no, want my no, whole strategy? No, no. What are you talking about? Um, well, everything we do, we do believe in democracy. Right. We do believe in liberation. So it is a collective. Like, there are points where I may come up with an idea, or Hawk News, my brother, may come up with an idea, or our 19-year-old president, Nepal Kiazolu, or, say, a community member, our director of education, Mario Banabi, may say, hey, this store has been vandalized in Leeds— the, the cleanup on that. Or say some of the Yemeni American stores, Yama's actually out here in Brooklyn. They reached out and they wanted to donate to Black Lives Matter Greater New York, but their stores were also getting vandalized. So to protect their stores, we did a collaborative presser. Everyone plays an integral role in that team, uh, in the BLM team. And do you guys strategize with uh, Black Lives Matter in different states and all over the country? So how is Just to give work? people a heads up on how it works, Black Lives Matter has a global right. organization. We are not an official part of global. Now, we have expanded onto multiple continents, Black Lives Matter, Greater New York. So in the protests that are happening in Paris, when you see people with the logo, the red, black, and green, that's because we started an organization out in Paris. Australia was actually rioting and protesting as well. We have a great relationship with um, the aboriginals, the indigenous people of Australia. They actually had their own Eric Garner case that most people don't know about. I believe his last name was Dungy. I hope I'm not wrong, but they were protesting for him, which is very similar to George Ford, George Floyd and uh, Eric Garner. Now we've been in over 200 schools. So we have a youth coalition. Our yearly march around the time of Eric Garner, around December-ish, like when they didn't indict, that is actually led by by school children, by high schoolers. So our branch, Black Lives Matter Greater New York, we are kind of at the forefront of the civil rights thing of the newer movements, the new civil rights movements. It's just grown exponentially. It's getting pretty large. And how, you know, for, because this next generation is super important, not just voting, but, you know, getting involved on the front lines for kids, you know, or kids or 18, 20 year olds uh, that are looking to get involved. Because now, you know, What's interesting, in the, especially in the past week or so on social media, is you see a lot of people, a lot of white people, starting to really start to reflect um, and, you know, hopefully uh, think of ways that they can help, uh, not just white people, everyone, to, to, to get involved, you know. What do you think is the best way to go about that? I mean, for me, you know, I, I have my opinions on what social media is doing and if, is it enough? Is it not enough? It's not enough until we see change. But... For you, I mean, you know from the inside out, how can people truly, you know, uh, make a difference? Or if they want to get involved, where can they look to to start that? And that was the issue that we, that when I was telling you about the structure of Black Lives Matter Greater New York that we had to address. Because we believe that true liberation 
comes from as a community effort. Mm-hmm. So we will be in the next upcoming days, we will be releasing a black agenda, what we're demanding politically, as well as we're inviting every single person from around the nation to reach out to us. We are easy to reach from Facebook, Twitter, social media, even our websites, messaging, to give you a blueprint on how to organize your own community, mm-hmm. how to create a food program, how to run for office, because we need people who think like us in office. So we're giving you a blueprint to liberation because that is important. But in the interim I with social media I love it to a sense I I love the fact that hashtagging and sharing a video affects public affects policy Mm -hmm. let's be real about it if politicians did not see this on the news if they weren't shamed by the media and thank you for allowing this message important message to be on your platform the world wouldn't change Mm -hmm. this is where we've come now like what happens in social media affects the world. It right. affects laws. So please keep sharing. Uh, and that whole generation, you're talking about Generation Z, I believe it is. I don't think they need any encouragement. This march that I helped organize was actually like thought up and founded and made happen by a group. I think the oldest person in the group was probably a sophomore in college. Wow. It was high school students. I'm a little jealous as an older millennial of the last next generation because they are beyond woke. They're like woke as fuck. I don't know if we can curse, but uh, they're amazing. These young activists and there was an activist, an environmental activist who I just did like a Zoom call with who was passing legislation. Her rights are more animal rights and environmental rights. Her name is Erin and she's out of Long Island. She's like 14 years old. Shout out to Erin. Shout out to Erin making change and there's so many, there's just, I'm jealous of their generation actually. I don't really think they need that much guidance. Maybe I can show them how to organize or show them where I went wrong and we went wrong in terms of organization. But this new generation is just impressive. Speaking of organization, what's something that you've learned? um, You know, you talk about maybe doing things right the wrong way, you know, from those ways in which you maybe organized in a a maybe less efficient manner. What is something that you've learned about organizing? Um, Our strategies are probably a little militant in terms of when I can give you back to Sunday, last Sunday, when I got back from Minneapolis and we organized in the street. The thing is you need order when you have that many people. So Mm. when we lead a march, it's actually in formation. And there are certain strategies and people have places to employ, not only for uh, the people who are marching with us safety, but for our safety as well. I won't disclose this whole thing to the SRG, who I hate. That's the strategic response group. I yell at them whenever I see them when I'm getting my coffee, actually (laughs) live by the courthouse. Um, Yeah, so... It's things like that. It's communication. It's things you know about keeping people simply safe when they're marching through the streets at intersections. How to chant a certain way so everyone receives your message. How Because you know in a... That, that old-timey thing when you've seen the older activists who I love, who have led the way, Angela Davis is a hero, but you see some of them who they all like to lock arms and stand mm-hmm. in the front and get that picture because what they're doing is, is a picture in front of the banner. That's mm-hmm. what people want. It, you can't have your whole team on the banner because who's keeping the sides in the back of your line safe? So I, I just try to teach them the messaging and things that I know how to do. And I'm always learning. Everything is a process for me. I actually found out today I was talking to Johnny who volunteered. Shout out to Johnny. He told me that it was eight days of rioting during the civil rights movement before legislation was changed. So um, I, I think we're pretty close now. So that's, that's kind of the way I wanted to go here is how do you guys, uh, you know, see as as an organization Black Lives Matter Greater New York City um, and just in general, you know, what is the big question is what is that change going to look like, right? Is it is it social? 
it's it's coupled with legislative. I mean, there's so many different ways that things need to change. Um, you know, and then we'll we'll go into what what would change look like. You know, with the police, what what do you hope one day to to, to truly see the the right relationship between the community and the police, and how do we get there? I mean, these are all the questions that are being asked. But you know, in your opinion, um, you know what what will be what's what will satisfy you know in your eyes uh, everything that's going on. We have to think about the history of policing. And then you'll understand that relationship is most likely never going to happen between mm. the black people and the police. You have to think about the Fugitive Slave Act. You have to think about the 13th Amendment. You have to think that the police were created to capture people who look like me to return them to their slave masters. So Martin Luther King said something to the fact, I hope I'm not going to botch his quote, <laughs> but it was like, I, we can't make them love us, but mm. we can stop them from like hurting us. So that's what we need legislation for. I would not be running for Congress. I wouldn't have the right to vote or to read if it was not for laws. Laws in America protect the people. So before we left for Minneapolis, we called on all governors from all 50 states to pass the I Can't Breathe Act. Now, what that act entails is if you're crying out in distress, as we've seen with Eric Gardner, as we've seen with Andrew Kears, as we've seen most recently with George Floyd, if you're screaming, I can't breathe, because all three of those men screamed, I can't breathe in their final hours. If... A cop denies giving you that medical treatment if they don't stop what they're doing right away and ask for medical treatment or however they're trained. It seems like they're poorly trained, but that's just being shady. However, they're trained to do these things. That is a class A felony. Now, if you die, just like those three men I mentioned, Garner, Floyd, and uh, Andrew Kearse, then they are tried for murder. We also, they also, it's also calling for a special prosecutor because we know that, <clears throat> excuse me, district attorney's offices and police department, they kind of share the same space okay. and they're kind of friends all the time. So we need uh, a special prosecutor and we're also calling for military personnel to investigate these crimes. So we're tired of waiting. And I know we had mentioned hashtag and how important it was, but I don't want to hashtag another mm -hmm. black man or woman. Shout out to Breonna Taylor because she's not getting as much press as she mm -hmm. needs to get and demanding justice for her. But I don't want to do another hashtag. So police relations would look like laws if... It will look like laws if they harm us, laws to prevent them from hurting us. And actually, we're working on, and I should right now be writing an article on this. Linda's going to stab me on repealing 50A. Now, what 50A does is it allows the NYPD to operate in secrecy. So all, most of the office, and you'll look at the guy who murdered, um, the cop who murdered George Floyd out in, what was it, in, in Minnesota, he had a history of police brutality. Most of the officers who have done these things have a history of police brutality. Now, with under 50A, which is a section of the civil rights law here in New York State, it's a secret. So you can be a cop who pepper sprays, beats everyone up, covers your badge, hides your body cam, and the public doesn't know any of these things. Even down to Pantaleo, which we assisted in getting him fired, uh, that, that was a victory because that was very rare, even though I would have loved to see him behind bars, but the Department of Justice gave us no justice. If we repeal 50A, then it would be transparency. Now, what we also need to get rid of is police unions. They should not be in a union. There should be no one protecting them. There should be no Pat Lynch screaming that they did nothing wrong when you see PT cruisers driving into crowds of people. And also, cops should have a license. 
Mm. Think about this. If imagine if you're a doctor or something and you have a license or whatever profession to have it, if uh, if they revoke your license completely, you can never work in that profession again. Because what we see is officers who get suspended and released and fired sometimes from their job, they're easy it's okay for them to go to another state or another city and get a job. So they need to be prosecuted. And another thing that we're is in our blueprint, we want to teach people how to police themselves. As you've seen a lot of communities, they kind of have their own ambulance services. They have their own community patrol. We need to get to the point where people in my community know how to police ourselves. So that's what it looks like to me. That will look like members of the community standing up, people like me, people like you, people who care about their community, and just being there to, while we still need the police, making sure that people are safe from the police department. And Black Lives Matter Greater New York is opening up a new arm called uh, Black Ops stands for Black Opportunity. Nick Cannon is playing an integral role with that. Our chairman, Hawk Newsom, just got back from LA Think Think Tank working on that. But it's teaching people how to protect ourselves against the police department until we can have all the legislation we need. Now, how would um, uh, a police retraining of sorts, I think you you might have touched on it very, very briefly, um, in your eyes look like? I mean, you know, it's, it's clear that something nationwide needs to be done it, you know, are there are there things that you know Black Lives Matter Greater New York City are, are suggesting? Are there ways in which that perhaps just you on your own have brainstormed of how we could go about you know even before we get to one incident, whether it's a life or not, to 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 prevent all of those, to retrain the generation that's already here and the newer generation of police that are going to go in? Um, you know, have you thought about ways in which you know you would be satisfied seeing that? Absolutely. Um, and Mayor de Blasio, again, failed on that. Uh, after Deborah Danner, she was a 66-year-old schizophrenic woman who was shot in her stomach in her apartment in the Bronx. She was holding a stick. She was um, becoming dysregulated. She was having like a little mental breakdown, and she was holding a stick. And I'm talking about a 60-year-old lady. We could have bum-rushed her and got a stick out of her hand. But the NYPD chose to plug her, shoot her twice in the stomach. And we protested in front of the Bronx DA's office for about 30 days that winter until they convened a grand jury. And what came out of that was the NYPD was supposed to be trained on how to de-escalate and how to handle situations of people having a mental crisis. Mm -hmm. Because we notice with people of color, when they're having a mental crisis, they usually end up shot or harmed by the NYPD. And that doesn't really happen in other races. And Mayor de Blasio failed to completely train the department. I don't want to misquote the actual percentage of it, but I'm sure it's less than 20% of the officers who were supposed to go through this whole mental health kind of training thing, how to de-escalate. They have not yet done that. And it's been like, I want to say three or four years since Deborah Danner's passed. Well, and in terms of uh, legislation, I mean, we were talking about that earlier. I think, you know, even for me and a lot of people, we, we talk about passing laws, passing laws. It's not as easy as we think, right? We got to get the right people in there. Um, will you explain for people who don't know how that process really works and why it's important to get people like you uh, in positions of power and to get, you know, other people that, that have a, a larger amount of power in office. I mean, talk about the the importance of going to vote on June, not just on November 3rd, but June 23rd as well. Yeah. It's the local elections are really important. I'm happy that my parents, who I talked about with their voting practices earlier, my mom actually voted on 9-11 and got an award for voting on 9-11, like a community thing. But we've always believed that every single election was important. And being a black person, we can't, um, we have to think about our legacy. 
when it comes to voting. And we have to think about our ancestors and how they died to vote. And those midterm elections are actually really important because say in my community, we've seen no shift no matter who's been in the White House. So say I remember when the first George Bush was in office and then I can list all the other presidents from here, Barack Obama, the Bronx has still been poor and broken and in lack of resources. What's important about getting someone into office is I steal this Shirley Chisholm quote all the time, someone who's unbought and unbossed. My campaign has has raised very limited funds compared to other campaigns, and we have not taken any corporate doc- dollars, any real estate money, any money that will compromise my integrity once I get to office. Because you get there and lobbyists come with the bill fully prepared for you to pass. You need people who are unapologetic, who only owe the people to run for office. Now, the difference between me and another candidate who may be progressive and share the same policy platforms that I have is I've affected changes of the law being a regular activist organizer. Mm -hmm. The New York State Tenant Protection Act, which happened last year, made good cause eviction, changed the the housing laws for New Yorkers because I had found out that 100 Bronx residents were getting evicted every single day. Now that number has drastically increased and it's protected regular tenants against predatory landlords. I do believe, um, I actually believe that we may have the I Can't Breathe Act before I take office. Because wow. So I'm just a regular person. So I feel as though my experience as an organizer has taught me how to mobilize people. I understand media strategy. I understand how to galvanize people, how to make them do these things. So you need, when you're deciding to vote for someone, you need to think about who were they before they ran for office. Mm -hmm. You need to, and then if they have been elected before, have they kept their word? Because people are selling you the Brooklyn Bridge when they're running for office. Like you're going to fly to Mars if you vote for me. Sprinkles are going to fall from the sky. But you really need to look at the integrity of a person before they ran for office. And then you also need to look at the money. You need to look at their money train and where does it come from and who are they going to owe because we know in America that nothing comes for free. So as of right now, all of my money's come from activists. It's come from people in my community and you're damn right I owe them. So yeah, that's what I'm going to work for. So, you know, there's, I was taking a look at, at your website, which again, I uh, want to plug it again, ShavannaNewsomForCongress.com. If you can donate, please go check it out. And there, you know, it's a great website. Uh, it talks about some of the issues that you're looking to, you know, enact change with. Uh, and so for people that are hopefully, and you should be going to vote on, uh, June 23rd and for Shivana, um, will you start, you know, give them a little bit of background on some of the, I mean, there's so much to go into with those policies. It's, It's but but, you know, some of the big ones that, that, uh, stood out are universal basic income. Yes. Right. I am, I I am a big supporter of guaranteed income. Martin Luther King, what people don't know was actually fighting for guaranteed income before he lost his life. He wanted $30 million from the government to eradicate poverty back then. I really wish they would have gave it to him because we wouldn't be having this conversation. When I referenced the Black Panther Party earlier, that was in their 10 point plan of federal jobs guarantee and also a guaranteed income. I do believe that people need some kind of floor. People Mm -hmm. need an income. And actually, it's weird that everyone says, what are you going to do when you get in office? When I've done these things before getting into office. So me, combined with the income movement, Andrew Yang actually signed on to this letter. This is before the first stimulus package was passed. We were calling for money to be given to you, every single person over the age of 18, and compensation for children. And I signed the Humanity Forward Pledge, which was $2,000 during the COVID crisis. And then I believe it's $1,200 
hours thereafter because no one deserves to be poor. And we have to, I'm going to get really nerdy on you guys now. So Google these things. Uh, the fourth revolution, the fourth industrial revolution is coming. Things are going to drastically change with automation and the wealth disparity is going to increase. So the rich will get richer and there's going to be no middle class. So while we figure out a way to keep Americans working and keep people going and look of new ways of, because I believe in green jobs, my area is super polluted because poverty goes hand in hand with economic injustice. We need to give Americans money. We need to help them. And that that's a huge issue. And now we're just going to take a quick break to talk about my longtime sponsor in Manscaped. The reopening is right around the corner, and there's a chance that uh, for you men out there, no one has seen your below-the-belt areas in quite some time. Don't ruin your first post-quarantine date with a ball fro. You get what I'm saying? Would you show up to the first day of school without a haircut? I don't think so. My friends over at Manscaped have created the best trimmer on the planet. It's called the Lawnmower 3.0, and it is the best hygiene tool for the modern man. They include this in their perfect package 3.0, which features not only this trimmer, it has a travel bag, performance boxer briefs, a crop preserver, crop reviver, all of that good stuff. If you subscribe to their peak hygiene plan, you also get a new replacement blade refill for your lawnmower delivered to your door every three months, which means your trimmer will stay fresh and clean to do the right job. The light is at the end of the tunnel, fellas, and treat yourself for making it through quarantine with this prestigious Lawnmower 3.0. Get 20% off and free shipping when you use the code WTG at manscaped.com. Use that code WTG for 20% off and free shipping at manscaped.com. Now let's get back into it. And you were you were a financial advisor, so you know, especially, yes. you know, in poor black neighborhoods, especially what Explain to, to people that don't understand when they're like, oh, well, we're, we don't want to give money to just for, for being alive. What, you know, a thousand, two thousand dollars a month could do for someone in that community, right? Because there is these underlying effects of when you give people money, it also gives them hope. It also gives them potential drive, different things here and there. So, and you've seen that firsthand. So talk about what that would do and what that would look like and why that's important for as an idea to get behind. Every single thing on my platform is backed by the people. And it took me a while to put up policy. Mm. Like my my competitors were like, why are you taking so long? What do you plan to do? Because I pulled the neighborhood, me and my volunteers, and I literally asked people, what would you do with an extra $1,000 a month? For the seniors and stuff, it came with a little bit of rent relief. It came with being the same thing with my dad, being able to buy medicine. Mm. With the younger people, I realized that they wanted to set some aside for entrepreneurship. Uh, just for childcare. So all those basic necessities that people of privilege take advantage of, it would help people maintain their lives. They don't realize that people are living paycheck to paycheck. People's rents are always usually a month behind where I'm from because they can't they can only afford to make partial payments. Someone said literally pay my rent in full. And a thousand dollars really doesn't seem like a lot in today's economy, but where the median income in the Bronx is twenty eight thousand dollars, that's an extra twelve thousand dollars a month without considering people who have have children. Wow. And I mean, you know, I was reading uh, or I m- might have listened to you on one interview talk about, I think. Uh, oh, you did your research on me? I, I, of course. You did it? I uh, like it. Is, you know, coming from your your congressional district, one of the, the poorest in the country. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's what, like a 90% college dropout rate, 40% high school dropout yes. rate. So is there also um, potential benefits of uh, universal basic income for that, for education, for reinvesting in those poor black communities that are getting no funding. I mean, I know those schools are so underfunded. I mean, talk about 
what it could do for for just you know getting uh, black people more in school and keeping them there because they resort to other ways to try to survive. And also, not only in addition to UBI, right? Because people in my district are they face homelessness because they don't have the money to pay rent. So that means that a lot of children in the Bronx are transient. They're constantly switching schools. They don't have a root and a foundation. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's when the tiredness catches up. <laughs> I start to sound a little hoarse. But uh, while, while I'm still awake, I'll, I'll spit it out for you. That's where my other policy platforms come into place. I do believe in free college tuition because then we'll have more representation. We'll have people from the community completing college. A lot of people in my community actually start college. They just don't have the means to finish college. Then we think about other things in terms of if we have free health care, people actually wouldn't have to take that UBI money to pay for medicine. And on a federal level, I do believe in needs-based funding. I grew up in that school district. I went to public school. I grew up in district number nine, which is one of, the, of course, is one of the poorest school districts and failing schools districts because there's no money and no resources. Now, what we need to do is see, look at the schools that are currently underfunded. And on a federal level, there needs to be a need-based kind of a program where we're pumping money into school so we can level the playing field. Like your kids should not have to be bused into the Upper West Side to get a quality education. My goal for the Bronx is to bring so many resources there that the Bronx is no longer a place where people want to escape. Most of the parents I know who have a little bit of money who are probably above that $28,000 marker, what they do is their kids go to school. They try to get out one. And if they can't get out right away, their kids don't go to school within the district. Mm -hmm. They send their kids to private schools and other types of educational institutions where they have to travel and wake up really early in the morning when we have four schools within walking distance of my block. And I'm talking about my neighbors when I say this. And this education policy actually came from a teacher who was born, who's lived in the Bronx his whole life. And he was like, hey, my policy for that came from a teacher who's actually, he's a principal now. But thank you, Dr. Chase. He was actually my brother's high school teacher. And he was like, no, you need need-based federal funding. So you see how all of my policies are collective. Just like everything I do, I believe in true democracy and the inputs of other people. And I think what's also, you know, I want to ask you about your experience growing up um, at one of those severely underfunded schools in in an impoverished neighborhood. Because some New Yorkers have the idea, you know, of what those poor neighborhoods look like. Most don't. Mm -hmm. But also, you know, for listeners, hopefully around the country and around the globe, will you describe really so we can understand firsthand what it's like to grow up in perhaps the poorest congressional district or one of the poorest. And this has to be a testament to my parents as well because we were poor, right? But they let me live inside of this bubble with education and they would Mm. take the money they did have to buy me clothes. And people wonder why, I just want to clear this up before I go deeper, why black people buy their kids Jordans and sneakers and stuff like that. Because they can't give you much. They can't buy you a car when you turn 16. They can't, we couldn't afford a family vacation with my father being sick. I didn't start vacationing until I was an adult. But they, they want to give you a sense of wealth. So when people wonder why people buy their kids Jordans, and also it stops you from selling drugs and getting into street life because a lot of people who are drug dealers, some of my friends did become drug dealers. They did this because they wanted new sneakers or they wanted a new North Face coat. So if your parents sacrificed a little bit of, unfortunately, the rent money to get you a luxury item, it probably forbids you from a life of crime. I usually don't play the Struggle Olympics, but with you, I told you I'd be fully transparent and I, I'd share my experience well, with it's you. it's also important, it's for, important for, people for, to for know. everyone to understand. No, because the reason you know? why I say it, everyone in my race, like every time we do a debate, if anyone watches it, every Everyone likes to talk about how poor they were. And I just don't. But 
I okay. want you to know what it was like growing up. I was born in 84. That was the middle of the crack epidemic. So on the way to school, this is a Bronx that had already been burnt. They hadn't started rebuilding. So there would be abandoned buildings that were boarding up on the way to school. And for some reason, we had some large amount of stray dogs. I don't know where these stray dogs, maybe people moved, left the Bronx, left the dogs behind. So there would literally be like packs of dogs that roamed around the Bronx. And on the walk to school, it seemed like the people who smoked crack would use the schoolyard to get high. So it was almost like you were playing hopscotch, the kids game, with crack fouls. You would be walking and you would see all the different, like crack cocaine comes in. I've never used it, just to put that out there. I do believe in the legalization of marijuana in my <laughs> policy. Uh, but... There would be different multicolored crack fouls on the way to school. You knew at an early age what a crackhead looked like. So drugs was prevalent. You knew what it was like to come home and not have lights because your parents, it's a Jay-Z line, but it's very true to people where I came from, where I come from, where your parents had to, I believe Jay-Z said you had to pay the rent with the light bill. Because my parents' biggest thing was you needed a place to stay. Thank God that we were never homeless. Did we spend a lot of time in housing court? Because my mom would have to take off time to pay for my, take care of my dad, who was severely ill my whole life. He had his first heart attack the year I was born. Well, actually, 85. I was born on New Year's Eve. So within the first, my first eight months of life, my father had a massive heart attack. So yes, we had to go to housing court. The housing court is where you beg a judge to give you more time to pay your rent. Did we, the worst part of poverty, what in which I really want to always express and say is the shame. Mm-hmm. Having to ask people, have to ask government agencies, have to ask these ask for help. And the thing is, my mom is a teacher. She refuses to retire because she loves what she does. Um, maybe this year, maybe once I go to Congress, <laughs> I'll get her to retire. But um, she is a cosmetology instructor. So she teaches people how to do hair. And most of those people end up to go on own their own business. And my mom worked 50 hours a week. So our poverty did not come from laziness because people like to associate that with poverty. And most of my neighbors in my community, people have like two and three jobs. Like my family's had an apartment. I got that apartment, lived in the same building for over 40 something years. Everyone goes to work. They're just poor. Um, So yeah. Like you, I was just lucky because when I talk about this, to have some pretty amazing teachers. And that's why it's so important to have free college education. I think what has led me to be who I am is the teachers from Roberto Clemente Junior High School that we call it 166X in the Bronx. They were all like super woke. Mm-hmm. And I'm talking about dashiki wearing black people <laughs> with like locks in their hair. And they showed us real maps to let us know that Africa was ginormous and way bigger than America actually is. And to see people who look like me, who had college degrees, postgraduate school, who had all these fancy degrees, teaching me that I could attain more. And this is back when schools had music. So I did learn, I'm not very good at it. So please don't ask me to play <laughs> um, how to play violin, how to play the keyboard, the xylophone. Um, I, my daycare took me on my first trip to D.C when I was like seven. So I actually got to see the White House at that age. And so even what I tell you, living in a bubble, my parents didn't have means to send me to private classes, but they found after school programs. They found daycare things. And they always told me I could be anything. It's weird that I'm running for Congress. My mom says she's not surprised because I never saw it. But this is way before Barack Obama. My father used to always encourage me to work harder because he was home. So he would help me with my homework Mm -hmm. when my mother worked. And he'd tell me that I could be president. And can you imagine a little black girl in the Bronx with a name like Shivana, which is ethnic as hell, and I love it. That's why I make sure everyone says it correctly, uh, that I could be president. So that that's what life was like in the Bronx. My childhood was good. I, like It was poor, but I didn't realize I was poor because everybody around me was poor. So I had a good childhood. 
Do you dream of one day becoming president? That's a little far. Can I just get past like June 23rd? Can, can, can I just become like a, a House of Representatives person? Like, can I, let me, let me get there first. Fair, fair, fair. Um, do you, I mean, you know, you talk about so many different things, but are you hopeful? I mean, do you see, you know, you do, you say everything with, with such a big smile on your face and you're talking about so many hard things and it's beautiful to see, you know, someone still maintain that positivity yes. and that smile, but you have to truly be hopeful. No, I mean, what, what do you see? Do you see this future getting better? I have to, or I would stop fighting. And that hope and stuff comes from God. I, I am a Christian. I do pray often. I do go to church and I try to live my life to be very Christ-like because I believe that Christ was actually our first revolutionary. He was the person who was who was sticking up for the poor. He was the person who was sticking up for the oppressed. He was kicking over tables. Like Christ was not passive at all. And the things he said, his parables were kind of a little condescending to people and gangster. So uh, Jesus Christ is one of my personal heroes. And um, to have faith and to live by their word, I have to be hopeful. I, I have to fight for the poor and the oppressed. It's my duty as a Christian because he gave his life for me. Now, to wrap things up, do you ever uh, do you ever think about legacy? What legacy does do you hope Shavana Newsom has on on this world? I want people to know that anything is possible and to reclaim their power. Mm -hmm. That's what I want to ignite. Um, and I've been seeing this for quite some time. I want everyone to know how I'm not elected, but I'm changing laws and I'm making effect. I want everyone to know that they're just as powerful. I want them, everyone to know that she inspired the masses. I just want my life's work to be an inspiration to all. Beautiful. Thank you. You can follow... Shavana on Instagram and Twitter at New York Fani. That's important to stay updated with uh, everything yes. going on. It's again, all there. <laughs> again, Shavana Newsom for Congress.com. If you can donate, please do so. She is running June 23rd. I will be voting for you. My mom will be voting for you. Everyone around, you know, it's it's really important for people listening and watching, I think, to um, you know, to to have people like you explaining all your policies, what you're about. Um, but if you're listening and you know, you you support Shavana, which I'm sure you do. Uh, you know, it's important to share. And social media is our biggest tool these days. Um, if you know someone who doesn't vote or is lazy or whatnot, make sure they get to the polls. Um, you know, I don't know if there's anything else that, that you want to say. I know for me, uh, it's, again, it's it's truly beautiful to, to hear you talk about so many different things. And uh, I hope that we have people like you in office. Um, you know, I hope that when you win, mm -hmm. um, I know you're going to do all these uh, great things. And, you know, if there's other people that uh, are running for similar positions in different states, you know, people inform yourselves. Uh, it's it's really important. So um, for me to you, thank you so much for taking the time, especially during these days, especially with everything going on. You're busy as hell. Um, so it means the world. And uh, I hope to, I can't wait to see you in Congress. Thank you. Thank you. Only if you promise to come to the inauguration. I'll be there. You'll be there. This was actually one of my most intimate and realist conversations I've ever had. And I'm grateful I was allowed to be like open and vulnerable with you. It's very rare I get to do that. So yeah, vote Newsom for Congress. Uh, follow me on the gram and reclaim your power. Reclaim your power. We will never have real justice without power. We will never have real justice without real power. That is my personal quote. So I guess that's the legacy I'm leaving behind. That quote will be there forever. Beautiful. Thank Shavana you. Newsom, everyone. Thank you. Thank you.